0: This Slate Spoiler Special is meant to be played after you see the movie being discussed.
1: Hello, Slate Culture Gab Fest listeners. This is Dana Stevens. I'm coming to you on a Friday this week because Slate is reviving its long-on-hiatus podcast, the Spoiler Special. These afterviews in which we discuss twist endings, plot holes, and other secrets you won't read in the reviews... Have been on hiatus since twenty fifteen, but we've decided to bring them back as part of our Culture Gabfest presents program. Every other Friday we'll be breaking down a new movie or occasionally a whole season of a TV or a streaming show, and you will find it in the Culture Gabfest feed. Let's take it away. I'm here with a slate spoiler special podcast on It, the new Stephen King adaptation directed by Andy Muschietti and starring a whole host of talented teen thespians. So, joining me in the Slate studio to talk it are Aisha Harris. Aisha is a culture writer at Slate and the host of the Great Slate podcast, Represent. Hi, Aisha. Hey, I'm glad this is back. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and I'm glad you guys are here for it. I'm actually really happy about the reinstatement of the spoilers. It's one of my favorite Slate things to do. And I'm joined by Sam Adams, who is the editor of Slate's culture blog, Browbeat. Hello. Hey, Sam. So I'm going to go over quickly with you guys what your qualifications is a strong word, but what your your interest was in coming in for this It spoiler. So I just want to know about your history with this property, It, which was a 1986- novel by Stephen King. It was one of his most successful novels, I think, and uh, very long. It's like an 1100 page tome, which has already been adapted once as a TV miniseries with uh, with Tim Curry as it who we will get into who it is in the 90s. So what is your background with it? And why did you want to come in and, and talk about this new version?
0: I went through a pretty big Stephen King phase, I guess, probably mostly in in high school and, and on into college, which would be when I read it along with a lot of other things, and it definitely made a, a big impression on me—perhaps an eleven hundred page impression or so. I mean, I, I think it was before I'd gotten to the stand, so it was the first of these kind of enormous, like Stephen King mega novels. That I'd read, which I guess he's he's only done a few that really fall
1: into that the category. The Stand is one I remember reading and is one of the scariest books I've ever read. And a, for a book to be scary, you know, especially if you're a movie person, is kind of going some. I remember sort of like screaming, you know, like turning the pages and squealing over developments in The Stand.
0: Certainly the first one of his that I'd read before reading The Dark Tower, something like that which kind of moves into more kind of fantasy and extra-dimensional realms. And But I think this was the first time I, I've encountered something like this in Stephen King where it really just kind of goes off the rails and it's no longer just about like, you know, a killer car or a rabid dog or something like that, but gets into this really kind of weird, sprawling, cosmic territory. Right. And, and it's
1: I, true as we'll get into really psychological horror in the in the true sense. Yep. Ayesha, what about you?
2: <laughs> I've never read a Stephen King book. I'll just admit this right now. I don't know why. I just haven't. Something on my to do list. But my first encounter with it was when I was nine years old. I was at a 10th birthday party for one of my classmates. And she was like a very big horror buff, even at 10 years old. And her parents. She's now a
1: goth somewhere.
2: Maybe. I don't know. I (laughs) I haven't spoken to her in, in 20 years. And her parents, for whatever reason, were also the type of parents who would just let their kids watch whatever they wanted. My parents were not like that. So a bunch of nine and 10 year old girls watched. The first cassette of it, because it was like two cassettes and it was two like it it was a mini series. And I remember I was already scared of clowns to begin with. And then when this came on, it terrified me. I did not sleep for weeks i had dreams even I, though
1: you only made it through cassette one well it is there
2: i had no idea what was coming like i never heard of this book i was nine years old and so to see him i think the first time we see him is when this woman is doing her laundry and there's sheets like white sheets billowing in the wind and then he just kind of like is standing there and just like his white face amongst all the white sheets and then seeing him reach in and grab georgie the, the little boy who is the younger brother of the main protagonist of the of the book and the story And drag him into the the sewer was just terrifying. So that has lived with me. And I think maybe solidified my fear of clowns that I I still find them very unsettling and don't like to look at them. But now with all the memes that we have of, of its face from Tim Curry playing him, it's like kind of impossible to escape it at this point.
1: (laughs) I think we should, two things at this point. I think we should retroactively prosecute the parents of that child. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Child endangerment.
0: Yeah. yeah. I have an eight-year-old daughter, and if someone showed that movie to her at a slumber party, I would murder them. Yeah. yeah. I came home
1: from (laughs) the screening last night, and my 11-year-old daughter asked me, so what was the movie you saw tonight? I just said, you you don't want to (laughs) know. It's too close to bedtime. But the other thing I think we should do is if we could drop in a little audio clip here of Tim Curry as it. I didn't see that old version, but apparently he was kind of the definitive evil clown, and with the love for Tim Curry that I have, I just feel like we need a little salute. Oh, you want it, don't you, Georgie? Oh, of course you do. And there's cotton candy and rides and
2: all sorts of surprises down here, and blue, too, all colors. Do they float?
1: Oh yes, they float,
2: Georgie. They.
0: And when you're down here with me,
1: you float down! So now to the 2017 adaptation of It, which, as this movie blatantly admits in the closing credits, is chapter one. It's not even dangling the possibility of a sequel. It just is flat up the first half of a movie. And we can talk about whether that makes the ending feel sort of unsatisfying and and suspended. But let's just quickly summarize for folks. Well, actually, what I like to do before we even get into the summary is just go around and get a really thumbnail reaction. Like, good, bad, would you send friends to this movie, each of you?
2: I was hoping that it would be scary, even though I hate clowns. Like, I like to be scared at this point. And while I wasn't terrified, I've seen scarier movies in recent years, I did still find uh, Bill Skarsgård as it very unsettling. And there were moments, I think, where it was very scary. I think I would recommend it to friends, especially those who like Stephen King. Stephen King himself seems to prefer this version, I think, to the the original miniseries, so I would suggest it. It's not great. There's a lot of problems, yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, too, found it less scary than I expected, and we should get into why, but I think particularly teenagers, older teenagers who can handle horror, I feel like it's a good sort of teenagers going out for a scary movie night kind of movie. What about you, Sam?
0: It's funny. I mean, the, the movie kind of puts me in a weird position as as a critic kind of talking about it because it's a movie that I can't deny worked on me, and yet I kind of resent it for it that in a certain way. Like, it definitely... It was technically effective in that, like, you know, I got kind of wound up and jolted. I'm generally like you don't want to sit next to me at a horror movie because I will start at loud noises and, and, you know, cringe in my seat and stuff like that. Like, I'm just very susceptible to those kind of Pavlovian cues. But you you
1: enjoy that feeling. Uh, No, I don't. I mean, I
0: like I love horror, like good horror that's really sort of about like something deeply scary. This just felt like kind of being put through a meat grinder for 100 minutes or I guess it's oh, it's 130, it's over, yeah.
2: Over two
1: hours.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, ju- it just, you know, left me kind of frazzled and not particularly fulfilled in any. Right.
1: The meat grinder is more psychological than, it's not graphic. It's not the kind of movie. I mean, I guess there's a couple bloody scenes and there's certainly scenes involving you know, jump scares and and things like that. But it's not the kind of movie you, like Saw. You know, you're not going to watch people be dismembered and tortured or yep. anything like that. Um, all right. So let's just for people who don't know the story, it's pretty complicated. There's a lot of characters to introduce. If you count all these kids that are running around solving There's crimes. Seven. But it gets to a point where you sort of, it's like one of those war movies where you have to identify every private in the army by his one trait, you know. <laughs> yes. Um, and they so, all have
2: one trait. So let's yes. go
1: through these these seven kids and their one traits and uh, and then sort of set up the problem. We're in Derry, Maine, a small town in Maine. Stephen King often seems to set his books there and, of course, lives there himself. And in the book, I believe we start off in the 50s and then the second half moves, you know, when the kids are grown up into what was then the present day of the 80s. So that's all been graduated up to the present day. So we start in 1988, and the late 80s is basically when this whole first chapter takes place. Does one of you want to jump in and set up what's going on in the town? I mean, as you mentioned, Aisha, in the very first scene, this little boy Georgie... Goes to float his paper boat down a rainy gutter and winds up having a conversation with an insane clown who peers up out of the sewer. We don't know whether this is in his imagination or what until he gets his arm ripped off and gets pulled into the sewer with the clown. And uh then we skip ahead to a year later, the boy has still not reappeared and we start to learn things about the town of Derry. Anybody want to jump in and mention some of those things?
0: Well I just want to say that I mean that opening scene really as far especially as far as like taking kids to the movie, like that opening scene really sets the tone for us. Because I think in the T V version like Georgie just gets kind of, you know, pulled into the just, sewer or something. Yeah. Like this shows you like the kid's arm getting bit bitten off and then there's an overhead shot of him like pumping blood into the rain um and then the hand comes out and like pulls him into the dream but there's a very clear beat where you're like looking at a i don't know how old is the kid like five, six, whatever, yeah yeah, like like with a with a severed arm like bleeding out in the street before he gets pulled into the sewer so yeah which is
1: why once again really do not take kids the age of aisha when she first saw it (laughs) this movie it's just too nightmarish um so but then what we start to learn afterwards about this town with clowns in the sewer is that a few hundred years back. How long ago was it back? Maybe back in the industrial age. So 150 years ago or something like that. Yeah. There was an explosion at a Easter egg factory or something like that. Do you understand what the Easter egg explosion was? I can uh, like not It was like an Easter understand. parade
0: or something like that because it's, it, they call it like the Easter explosion. It's like, yeah, it's like the 1890s or something. And it's, um, I guess it was maybe during the point before child labor law. So it could have been a factory blowing up, but it just felt like because most of the victims were children, like maybe it was a parade or an Easter egg hunt or something like that, some sort of event where like most of the most of the people at it would have been kids.
1: And so that's kind of the originary horror of this town. Although how it's quite tied into the clown, I don't understand. Did mm-hmm. the clown make the explosion happened i was very
2: confused one of the boys jeremy ray taylor who plays ben he's the overweight kid because you always have to have an overweight child in these movies the classic. exactly the goonies all that stuff he's kind of the outcast of the outcasts at first and he spends his time in the library and so he while he's in the library he discovers like he's looking up the history of dairy. and so he's mapping out all of these events that are happening and as he's looking at these photos like Sometimes it will appear, and like he appears in other ways too, but then again, like you said it's never really like explained what it has to do with these factory explosions happening and I wonder if that's tied up in the second half i don 't know i don't know i mean it's just this sort
0: of ancient evil like there's that i mean there's an implication that there was sort of a basically kind of you know Roanoke type like you know crotoan disappearance back in the sixteen hundreds or something like the nineteen 19- I think it's 19 people who signed the original dairy Charter, like all sort oh, of that's vanished. Oh, right. It and goes all the a, way back to
1: colonial a, days. a bloody
0: trail leading to the, the, the town well and stuff like that. And I think if this is not in the movie for probably fairly obvious reasons, but I think in the book it's, it's implied that this is Lovecraftian horror from between dimensions that slammed into the earth on an asteroid or something like that and has just been, just happens to have been located in this small town in, in Maine for, I don't know, hundreds of years, if not Millennia.
2: And he comes out every 27 years, I guess, to feed on kids. Yeah. For how long? I'm not sure. Until he's full, I guess. Seems like about a year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and so yeah. So the, so the fat kid Ben figures all of this out in his library ramblings. Then he crosses paths with this other group of kind of outcast kids. We should say this takes place mainly over the course of one summer. So it's the last day of school as we start the movie. And uh, there's a kind of a fun recurring theme that whenever the kids are too scared to do whatever their next adventure is, whatever next horrible thing they have to explore, they'll say, "This is summer. We're kids. We're supposed to be having fun, but they're not having much fun at all." So who are some of the other kids? You've got Bill. Who's the older brother of the disappeared boy, um, who stutters? He's the stutterer. The stutterer, and
2: he's also like obsessed with trying to figure out what happened to his brother. He like at one point, his father finds this maze or this reconstruction of the sewers that happens. He's like, we got to find where Georgie might have landed. So yeah, he's obsessed. He's a stutterer. There's also Richie Tozier, who is played by Finn Wolfhard, and I think he's the one from Stranger Things. He's the one from Stranger Things. Yeah. Yeah, and he's got glasses. And is really, like, kind of a, a, a dick.
0: Yes. He's just kind of <laughs> like funny, the loudmouth. He's always making, like, he's, he's, he's that kid who's sort of pretending that he's, like, has all the sexually experience, sexual experience, even though he's never almost certainly probably, like, never kissed a girl or anything like that. And is yeah. always making kind of, you know, your mom jokes about.
1: Comebacks, like, better than spending summer inside your mom. Yep. Yeah. High five. <laughs> yeah.
2: And you have the hypochondriac who is played by Jack Dylan Grazer. His name is Eddie in the movie. And he is also kind of a smart aleck. Like the two of them trade a lot of barbs and, yeah. and go back and forth.
1: That kid, the, the kid... And who, he has asthma. Who has asthma or his mom convinces him <laughs> has asthma is one of the many places where the darkness of the parental... Force in this universe is is asserted, right? We'll get to the other one later. But it's basically implied, if not stated, that his mom has Munchausen yep. syndrome by proxy, right? That yeah. she's spent her, her whole life nursing her son and making him believe that he's frail and fragile when, in fact, he's perfectly healthy. Mm-hmm. Oh, but- then there's Mike. The one black kid in the group, and also, yes. and it's not the new kid in town, but the homeschool kid, they call him. So he lives on a sheep farm where his his job, which is incredibly hard to watch, is shooting sheep between the eyes with bullets, which couldn't help but make me think of the Charles Burnett movie, Killer of Sheep.
2: Yeah, right. I actually had that exact reaction. I was like, oh, this is interesting.
0: And you also have Stanley, played by Wallet Olaf, who is, uh, you know, the Jewish kid in town. So, I mean, there is this. I guess I don't know subtext. This kind of theme running through the movie that they are, you know, not just outsiders, but also kind of you know racial or religious or oh. sort of like ethnic others. So there, there is this kind of you know they you don't it never actually says that like they're singling out Mike because he's black, you know. But they they tell him like you know get out of Dairy, like you don't belong here, you know. There, there's and the same thing with with um, Stanley, it's the Jewish kid. So you definitely the. the The town bully um, is and we find it as the son of this kind of, you know, drunken, abusive sheriff does seem to be kind of latching on to their their differences.
1: And so then last of all, and maybe most surprisingly of all, this group of nerdy high school freshman boys is joined by this lovely young girl named Bev Marsh, who's played by Sophia Lillis. And who is an outcast, I guess, because there are these rumors that she's a slut floating around the school and around the town, even though, in fact, she seems to be a very inexperienced girl. But she takes up with these boys. And especially after she learns about the clown sightings and their summer project to figure out what it is, she joins them on their adventures as well. Two of the boys are in love with her. All of them are kind of, you know, have a crush on her, I guess, because she's the one girl in their midst. But two of, of the boys, the fat kid Ben and our main protagonist, Bill, have serious crushes on her. And that becomes a theme in the movie as well.
0: And there is that scene, there's a scene where they all go skinny dipping and she's, or not skinny dipping, but they strip down to their underwear and jump into this quarry. And she sort of, you know, falls asleep listening to, I, I believe it's, it's Bust a Move afterwards. And then the boys are all just kind of staring at her, like in her underwear, laid out in the rocks. But just this kind of, just this, just this awe, really. it's It's almost not even sexual. It's just like, I mean, they're just, can't believe that, like, this girl is, like, in front of them.
1: I love that scene. I mean, I would say in general that the scenes not having to do with monsters are my favorite part of this movie, and one of my complaints is that there aren't enough of them. There's not quite enough development of the relationships between and among the different kids. There's enough that we get to like them, and all the kid characters, I think, are uniformly well-cast and great, and I hope have futures in, in acting, and I'm curious to see what they'll find, who they'll find for their adult counterparts in part two. Maybe now we should get to the horror itself, because hand-in-hand with my loving of the scenes where the kids are just being kids and trash-talking and hanging out together, is that I think that the the horror comes too hot and heavy in this movie. There's not enough pacing. There's not enough dealing out, to me, of the scares. And as a result, the scares really started to, to dull on me and be less and less scary every time. I don't know if you experienced that. Well, it's funny because I feel like the trailer was sort of laid the groundwork for
2: what the movie was. There were several trailers over the course of, you know, this six months or however long this whole campaign actually started and as soon as i saw the trailers i was like we're seeing a lot of it (laughs) like so many shots of him and i was like are we getting all of the jump scares from the movie and they just kept coming and i was like i wonder if part of it is that because we already have the tim curry it we know what it is going to look like we know he's going to be a scary clown and they're just like well there's no point in us withholding and holding back so let's just go for it you see it so much more than i remember seeing it in the original miniseries and especially like the last i don't know third of the movie the last third of the movie or so it's just like one after the other of not just it but also the 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 whole point of it is that he feeds off of the fears of each of the individuals and so the hypochondriac is scared of lepers and people with lots of germs on them and and obviously bill is afraid of he's still harboring this fear of georgie and so georgie keeps reappearing and we keep seeing these fears reappear back to back to back to back and separating them from each other and it just got to be overwhelming and not as effective. Well, I was making tally
1: marks like hash marks in my notes as I was watching for how many scenes were scary, overtly scary, like they had a jump scare, they had it, they had a monster, they had some sort of horrifying, unexpected development. There were more scenes like that than non scenes, you know, it would sort of be like an entire five pair hash mark of scary scenes, and then maybe one of those downtime scenes like the kids lounging on the bank of the quarry. And especially from the director, Andy Muschietti, who directed Mama. I don't know if you guys saw that horror movie, yes, with Jessica Mm -hmm. Chastain. Yeah. Very much the opposite, a very minimalist, also lower budget, of course, but a very minimalist horror movie that really dealt out its scares very sparingly. And uh, he seems to have gone the opposite maximalist route here, which I have to say the audience that I was sitting with loved that approach. Although they also probably found it maybe more comical than scary sometimes. Yeah,
0: they were definitely laughing at the at the setups by the time we were an hour into it. I mean, the moment for me, I knew that the movie was blowing it um, was about three minutes in. It's really the the first scene. There's uh, Georgie. Ends up kind of in the sewers, getting eaten by Pennywise because his brother has made him this paper boat that he's Pennywise floating is in the this clown's name, Yes, I yes. Say. While Bill is making the boat, he says, okay, well, you have to go down to the basement and get the wax, you know, to paint on those paper boots that will float in the water. And Georgie goes toddling down to the basement, and it's already this, like, creepy scene with this, like, enormous music <laughs> and, like, focusing on the dark space at the top of the stairs, which is just ripping off The Conjuring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's spooky glinting in the dark, which looks like it might be glowing eyes in the basement. And the it's just—it doesn't take a second to establish that this is kind of this idyllic main town with a dark secret underneath. It's just immediately laying on the creeps and kind of shoving you around right from the beginning emotionally.
2: That's one of my biggest complaints about a lot of horror movies is the music. The musical cues I feel like are often too, like I feel like there's so much more horror in silence and I feel like this movie was another one where there were unnecessarily rumblings and signalings of like, this is going to be scary. And then sometimes it was a fake out, but most of the times it actually turned out to be, yes, it is right there. He is there.
0: You just reminded me, mentioning Mama, that uh, Jessica Chastain plays kind of like a goth, like, you know, bass player in that movie, I believe. So I I have to assume that... Sophia Lillis is playing this, you know, kind of quasi-goth, cure-listening redhead in this, that if, you have to assume that if Andy Muschietti comes back for the sequel, that he's eyeing Jessica Chastain for that part. Or Molly Ringwald. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, she's compared to, jokingly at one point, who would yes. have been, of course, a contemporary at that point in the 80s. Yeah, Jessica Chastain was the first person who popped to mind when I thought, who's he going to cast in the sequel? I could actually go down the line and imagine actors playing almost all those roles. Jesse Eisenberg is a natural for the uh, the Jewish yep. neurotic kid. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a personal question for each of you, like each kid has a different psychological space that it learns to inhabit. Uh, what was for you the scariest moment in the movie or the or the kid whose fear you identified with the most?
2: I mean, I think for me, the sk- like the pure adrenaline scare, the p- one where like I actually sort of jumped out of my seat, which I was surprised to have because it was one of those scenes from the trailer that was already in the trailers but it went further it was the one when they're in the the garage and they're you know flipping through these old slides the slideshow and you know as they're flipping through the the slide projector starts to have a mind of its own and starts flipping through and you see it appear but it goes even further than the trailer in which like it all of a sudden is like popping out of the the screen. The
1: ring style, right? Like the Japanese film The Ring. I thought that was
2: really well like just from a technical standpoint, I thought that was really well executed. And I actually like I was like, oh this is this is unsettling. And so that for me was like the part where I felt the most like uncomfortable.
1: That the idea of the slideshow going crazy was fantastic, I thought. Just the idea that your family slide carousel that you think you know what's in it suddenly reveals that it has these secret other slides that show an evil clown emerging from what seems to be the, the mother, mother of the two kids. Yeah, who we Although never it's not, qual- see. It's, not yeah. Yeah, it's not quite explained who she is. We see her playing the
2: piano at
0: oh, that's the right. very beginning, in, in, but that's it. Yeah, that's right. We just in that first just in that first scene we see her. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What was your scariest sound?
0: I'm starting to move into a point in my life where I'm no longer sort of afraid as the kids, but I'm afraid for the kids. You know, my my daughter's several years younger than the the kids in this movie, but, just, you know, she's not far off from the age that Georgie is. And the idea of this, you know, seven year old kid being left to like bleed out in the gutter is really something about that really kind of struck and disturbed me. And so then. Bill's obsession with his brother still being alive possibly only being disappeared and his father's attempt to make him deal with the fact that no you know it's been 8 months your brother's not coming back he's dead that I think really resonated me just as as a theme more than any any particular moment I think you know I guess there's a there's a scene where he kind of sees Georgie standing in the water in his basement and you could just kind of see the light off his rain slicker or something. Then he kind of steps into the light and his face starts rotting and it's obviously like a CG effect. And then it's not scary anymore, but <laughs> something about that, you know, child standing in the corner in a way that it could almost be, you know, just a trick of the light or something like that. Mm-hmm. Where he's just kind of half visible, like that I that I found affecting, I right.
1: guess. Once again, well, that goes to my argument that you know the the spookiness gets a little too punched out, right? If he hadn't stepped into the light and started CGI decomposing, you might have remained more scared. And then, the, and then
0: the clown
2: jumps out of the, out of the water, but,
1: like up the steps. <laughs> you know? And there's too much of that yeah. in this movie, where it's like it was already scary without the clown. Keep yeah. the clown. in, well, in I wondered if longer. that
2: I wondered if that moment was also like supposed to be playing with the idea of like fear and laughter and how those things are very closely linked together. Because that moment felt like specifically like it was supposed to be funny when he's like. Ah, it starts like basically like twitching Um, and there were other moments too where it seemed like Bill Skarsgård was going for a more humorous tone than just straight up scary there's
0: a movie marquee in the town and at one point it shows, I don't know, I think maybe a Star Wars movie or something, but at one anything. point it shows Nightmare on Elm Street 5, and uh-huh. there's also a poster of Gremlins in his his bedroom in the first scene, and it really does seem to be taking some of its cues from those sort of horror comedies mm. of, of the 1980s. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street is way more horror. Gremlins, although it scared the crap out of me as a child, I now realize is more of a comedy. But I think that... Mixture of tones is something like what it is going for.
1: Yeah. And it sometimes succeeds, sometimes not. Can I tell you my scariest moment? which actually I wish there had been much more about this, it was that painting that Stan was scared of in his synagogue. There's this part where he's learning his Torah portion for his bar mitzvah and he has to go into the rabbi's office, which is this dark, gloomy place, and then there's this really strange painting on the wall that looks sort of like a Modigliani, but an evil Modigliani where the woman's (laughs) eyes are kind of off-center and blank without pupils. Anyway, it would be scary enough if nothing happened out of that painting, but there's a moment that the painting kind of reaches for him and I thought that was really scary. And maybe part of why I preferred that scene is that it was less explicit. You don't quite know what creeps him out about that painting, but it all seems to be tied in with this dark space and this kind of, you know, foreign language that he's chanting in. And I don't know, it sort of, it turns the synagogue into this like space of unqualified evil. And I thought that was really effective.
0: Uh, yeah. One of the reactions I remember having, reading the book at the time, and I'd read enough Stephen King um, And I was probably just starting to kind of think of myself as a critic and trying to, dis, you know, kind of decide just in my own head, like, this is what I, I've decided, like, what makes Stephen King a good author. And I, I felt like it was just he really keyed into just kind of what's scary. Like, he just kind of knew what scared people in a way that horror authors sometimes don't tap into. And it felt to me felt like the book where he kind of went astray and got into stuff that was just kind of I don't know, off pieced a little bit. But I think the painting is one of those examples where just like when you're a kid, like paintings could just be creepy, just kind of hanging on the wall in the in the dim light. And
1: yeah, I remember rooms I didn't want to go into in my grandparents' house and things, and they didn't even have evil eyeless women in them. <laughs> you know, they were just sort of old and dusty. So as we mentioned earlier, adults in this town can't see all the scary things that are happening, right? It's it's clearly a, a sort of kid kid world that in which this horror is happening. And yet it's real. I mean, there are real results. Children are actually dying and disappearing in this town. The adults acknowledge that children are dying and disappearing in the town. But the whole supernatural side of it is something that's visible only to kids. And I'm interested in the portraits of adults in this movie. I mean, it really is a world where there's not a single parent who seems like a source of protection or comfort or kind of explanation of of any kind. And in fact, most of the parents like the mom who may have Munchausen syndrome by proxy are these kind of evil figures.
0: I mean, one of the interesting things that I don't know, I've noticed in the movie, and I, I at a certain point I couldn't tell if this was me reading into it or if the movie was intentionally doing it or not, but I felt like there was a point in the movie where I started to see Pennywise's face in the faces of the adults, um, particularly the the kind of Munchausen by proxy uh, mother you were mentioning. But I don't know, something about certain angles of the lighting or something like that, I almost started to think like, wait, is that Bill Skarsgård in in kind of makeup or something? You know, a lot of the the women in... The adult women in the movie, including his mother and the librarian, are wearing these sort of very incredibly out of fashion now, but these kind of, you know.
1: Polyester pants. Yeah,
0: polyester kind of like, you know, waistless, shapeless outfits that make them kind of look, I don't know, weirdly, you know, I don't know, much older than they are or just even farther away from the kids.
1: Yeah, it makes adulthood seem like this very debased. Moral state and physical state to exist in, which is interesting to think about when you know we're going to see the kids grown up in the next edition.
2: Yeah, I thought she looked very different in a way. Her face just looked slightly off when she picked up Eddie after he broke his arm while they were trying to capture and uh, kill it the first time around. And I was like, oh, that's weird. She looks—I don't know—she looks bigger somehow, and she's was being very exaggerated in her movements and. I felt a little uncomfortable about that. I was like, "Oh, are we like just really going to make fun of this woman for being fat?" Like it felt right. like it felt like a nutty professor, Eddie Murphy, like mm-hmm. uh, whatever. She kind
0: of reminded me of like the woman whose head splits open in total recall and you realize it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger inside
1: <laughs> her. <laughs> but, That's all this movie was lacking. Yeah. Yes. Well, and then the most evil parent of all who we haven't touched on is the father of Bev, the only girl in the group who it's more than implied has this history of incestuous advances toward her at the very least and we don't know what else she also seems to have no mother on site it's not explained why
2: also as well she's just becoming a woman and by that i mean (laughs) she's she's getting her period um and this is obviously portrayed in a very graphic way where she's in the bathroom scene which i think i remember from the the first movie where she like hears these voices in the sink when she's locked herself in the bathroom and then like all of a sudden blood just starts gushing from the... It was very Carrie-like. And The (laughs) Shining, That
1: would have been the most effective horror scene to me if it hadn't been sandwiched in between 15 other equally intense horror scenes. And that goes back to my complaint about just the overly densely packed, you know, not enough remission from the horror. But yeah, the, the Carrie reference and the idea that you know down there in the sewer are the speaking spirits of all the disappeared children, and also the really freaky fact that her father doesn't see it at all when he comes into the bathroom, and all of the walls are dripping with blood, and she's completely freaking out, and he has no idea what's going on.
0: And it's interesting that the movie stays with that perspective. Like, there's never a shot where it it the bathrooms are covered with blood and hair, and her father says, "I can't see it," but there's never kind of a cut where all of a sudden the bathroom is white and sparkling again and you realize, oh, this is just all in her head. It's actually, it's still there. And then all the boys come over and they have this big scene where they put on the cure and spend however long, like, you know, squeegeeing the blood off her windows and stuff. But it is really there. It's not something that she's Yeah, and
1: not cutting to that shot, which was kind of the horror movie cliche that you're expecting, right? Like, here's how it really is, does sort of convince you that you're in a world where the kids alone see the truth of what's happening. Right. All right. Well, since we're here to spoil, let's get to the last sequence of the movie, which is the kids finally figuring out kind of the the locus of it, which is this old well in this house that is just so the classic production design of the horror movie house that's falling apart and full of spider webs and, you know, all boarded up and everything. They find their way into this house and down into the well where they know the kind of font of horror is coming from. And their fates after they get down there are I think, kind of telling. So let's get into what happens to to some of the kids when they go down the well. So
2: the reason they go down there in the first place uh, is because Bev is has been trapped there. It has grabbed her and has dropped her down into the well. And so they're all like, well, we have to go down and save her. And funny enough, the way in which they go down there is like, Five of them, the, the five boys, get down there first, but then Mike is, like, left behind because he's the black kid and he's always left behind.
1: Yeah. You stay uh, up there with the cheap gun.
2: Yeah. He's um, like,
0: I'm going to bring the weapon, but I don't get to actually fire it.
2: Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. I have, yeah. I have a lot of questions about Mike. But – So he gets stuck up there and then the bully, one of the bullies who has been terrorizing them throughout the entire movie, earlier in the scene we learn that he's been somehow possessed
1: by It or something. Yeah, he seems to kind of be an agent of It. Again, something that really needs clarification in part two. Yeah, it's
2: not understood, but like the forces of It somehow force him to kill his own father and then go after the boys. And so... Henry shows up while Mike is still, like, up there getting ready to go down. And then this was also confusing to me. Like, we learned that Mike's parents were killed in some sort of, like, fire or explosion and he was able to get out. But then Henry, by way of it or by way of something, says, like, he wished he could have done something i didn't understand happening i
0: think he says like he wished he could have burned them, burned them himself or something like
2: that okay right so he they have like a struggle for the gun and and a and a call back to the first scene we see mike in where he's like hesitating to kill the sheep he doesn't hesitate with the gun this time and he's able to like fend him off and then drop down and help the other guy, kids and then the other kids also while they're in the well they start seeing their fears again and kind of going off and doing their own thing and then they finally make it into the well like into the actual well where Bev is like sort of not fully floating uh, because she's not fully afraid of him but she's kind of just hanging in midair
1: that was a moment where I thought that the cosmology or whatever you call it the kind of supernatural nature of the world needed to be clarified because What it looks this production design is great, I have to say. But what it looks like down there is is this giant mountain of debris that the clown seems to have amassed over the years. That's mainly children's toys and baby carriages and things like that. Very creepy. And above this big tower of debris are these bodies, I guess dead bodies or semi dead bodies of the children that have been killed over the years, kind of rotating around this pile of debris. Now, why is Bev not? Why does she not share their status? She says something along the lines of like, "Oh,
2: I'm not afraid of you." and but he's still somehow able to possess her like halfway. Right. And so that's I guess is supposed to be her not fully giving in but he's got some control of her and so she's like stuck in limbo.
0: You know, some of the better horror movies don't explain things at all, but this this one kind of flirts with it and then and then pulls back. So you have this weird distinction where sometimes he just like bites the kid's arm off and then some kids he just kills and then others he kind of like possesses and then they float down there and Pennywise has these kind of awkwardly squeezed in lines at the end like his last word before he dies he goes fear (laughs) you know it's like oh I guess he Feeds on fear, like that's a thing I've seen in horror movies before. So that must be what's going They're on said here.
1: That he feeds on fear, but I yeah. also thought it was strange that his last mm-hmm. word was just fear. I mean, is he saying like I'm hungry?
0: Yeah, <laughs> before I before I die of starvation, <laughs> like meal. my last word will be
2: tacos. You know, <laughs> like... for cookie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a little confusing too because there were times when he would actually like bite off the face of someone, but then they'd be fine.
1: And he even says, "I feed on them. I feed on their fear." But it's sort of like you can't have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, clown. I,
0: I mean, it, it does. I, ju- I just feel like there are a lot of, and I don't. I don't think that the novel is like. But I know it's been kind of kicking around for a long time, and there's been a lot of, and the you know the movie kind of switched directors at at, at one point. Like it's been a very um, kind of freighted project. finally getting to the scene, and a lot of King's fans kind of consider this novel, you know, if not his masterpiece, certainly like one of them. I don't think it's that. But I do think I mean, I just remember a lot of of themes in the book that kind of don't really get picked up here or get kind of paid lip service. So one of them is togetherness. I mean, it's sort of this movie overlaps in, in some ways a lot with Stand By Me, you know, it's about this group of kids confronting death and being kind of brought together by it. And, you know, one point, the first time they go into the house um i think it's bill kind of observes like oh you know he didn't get us you know because we were together and then that kind of comes back in the final scene when there's what's effectively like a raid battle um <laughs> where they all kind of go in against pennywise <laughs> at the same time and that i guess is kind of neat and cinematic but just also seems like a little clumsy but it is it is better than probably the most notorious i mean not probably very much the most notorious scene in the book and one that is just Was never going to make it any any adaptation is uh, the way it works in the book is that the kids are trapped in the sewers after, you know, defeating it or sending it back to his hole. And they um, decide that they need to bring themselves together somehow. So Beverly um, decides that all the boys need to have sex with her. And then they all do that in Syriatum, And then they're all together. Um, and then they finally get out of the sewers.
1: <laughs> so, <Are> you <laughs> Kidding yes. me?
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. So um... that's something
1: that definitely uh... I'm, I'm glad does not make it into the 21st century. Like pulling a train as spiritual redemption. <laughs> I
0: could just, I could just picture like you know the the writer doing the adaptation. You just go through going through and marking up your. Paperback copy and just drawing a like big X on that page. You know? Especially like,
1: given that she's supposed to be this victim of like incestuous assault, like that's going to be a real expiatory move yeah. for her. Yeah.
0: yeah. Hey guys, <laughs> I got an idea.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. That's for the fanfic version. Yeah. (laughs) The the only other thing I wanted to get at about the ending, and then maybe we'll get to the cliffhanger a little bit, but is is Bill's resolution. Bill being sort of the protagonist to the extent there is one, the older brother of Georgie. So when he encounters Georgie underground in the the place of the floating children and the, the pile of garbage and all that. He has a most unexpected, to me, encounter with him. And what he basically does is he has the he has the very last bullet in the sheep shooting gun that Mike brought along. And after exchanging vows of affection with his brother and saying, I love you, he says, but you're not Georgie and shoots him right between the eyes.
0: Yeah. Punctures a hole in his head. I mean, and that is like, that's one of the things where you go, oh, so the movie was, is supposed to be about like him kind of accepting death because the, his whole character dilemma is that his brother is is dead um, and he won't accept that and he feels guilty and that guilt actually gets underlined in that final scene where you know the brother says you know the boat was so fast i couldn't keep up you know so it's the you know bill made the boat fast and because georgie couldn't keep up with it went down into the sewers that's how he saw pennywise and that's how he got killed so his guilt is kind of underlined even though it's obviously not actually his fault and because there's the, the idea that Pennywise is sort of incarnating these kids' greatest fears, then maybe that's what's been underlying it the whole way that he blames himself not just for, you know, the way anybody in a family feels guilty when, when someone else dies, whether or not that's rational or not. But that the, the kind of the core of it is, you know, I made the boat, mm-hmm. you know, and that sent him out into the rain. And that's when he disappeared, I guess, in accepting that he's no longer afraid of it.
1: Yeah, it's just the graphic element of that that surprised me. I yeah. mean, it's it's not even a judgment. I guess yeah. it's just a Stephen King thing. You know, it's a full intensity thing. I mean, he doesn't just sort of reconcile with his brother and hug him. And then in maybe a nicer ghost movie, his brother would turn to ash and drift away because he's been mourned. He can forgive himself. But instead, he actually just re-kills and annihilates his brother, who, of course, then turns into the scary clown. So you realize he was only a shapeshifter in the first place.
0: Right. I mean, you can kind of dif- divide horror movies into two camps. I mean, there are those that will kill the kids, and there are those that won't. And most of them fall into the later camp. And it's always, usually when a director kills a kid early on and, and um, I mean, it happens at the end of Mama, but it also happened in, like, um, Guillermo del Toro's Mimic. It's like a line in the sand where the horror director tells you, like, I am going to go there, you know, mm-hmm. and no one is safe, and just because this kid is eight doesn't mean I'm not going right. to cut his arm off.
1: Mama goes there, but it goes there at the end, at least, in a redemptive sort yeah. of way, where the kid who dies also sort of, in some way, joins her mother in another realm and so it's sort of a happy and sad ending at the same time Uh, what about the cliffhanger let's just get to the very very end after as far as we know it has been eliminated although apparently not because there's going to be a part two he says fear he disappears down into the well and then we cut to i think it's the first day of school basically september has started again and all of our protagonists the big seven are meeting in a field and taking a vow and so they all decide because one of them, the, the fat kid. I feel bad that I keep calling him the fat kid. Ben, ben. Is his character's name. <laughs>
0: you didn't, you didn't write him though. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah, he was written. He as is the, fat, the kid, fat kid. It's not your fault that they wrote him that way. <laughs>
1: and I should say he is one of my favorite of the performers. I he love the great. kid who plays him. He's a true kid. You know, it's like the kids and freaks and geeks. The uh, the geeks. That he actually feels like a, a child. Yeah. So he, having discovered that every twenty seven years this pattern repeats itself, they then take the vow that. If when they're adults, as they point out, when we're the age that our parents are now, if this happens again and it returns, we have to take this blood oath that we're all going to going to come back and fight him together. And then there's, again, sort of a harsh scene where they go around and cut all of their palms with a, a this piece af- of glass.
2: This after the hypochondriac, Eddie, made a joke earlier about AIDS. And and, and st- there were so many 80s jokes, uh, which I thought was weird. I was like, they're all going to take a blood oath and share their blood. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, the I, 80s. I,
1: that was a, a mischance for a line for Eddie, for sure, with his fear about staph infections, etc. Yeah. But maybe he's gotten over it because of, of their, their ordeal together. But so, yes, they all take this blood oath join their blood and vow that they will join each other if need be in 27 years and as we all know need will be that they do that <laughs> and uh, and we're gonna get another chapter yes soon. I mean
0: it'll really depend on how the movie does this weekend but
1: <laughs> I think
2: the director has said like I'm all on board for it but I don't think it's officially yeah go.
1: it's a gesture of hubris to say chapter one and it actually got a laugh in the theater that yeah. I was seeing it in a delighted laugh I think people were excited for there to be a chapter two but just the brazenness of you know come back it's almost a cliffhanger the way it's it is like, it's
0: like a James, the James Bond will return yeah. credit at the end
1: I do
2: wonder had I not known that this like if I went into this not knowing anything about the book or the movie the the first movie and not knowing that there is it's a very long book and that it's two parts and it's meant to be two parts and I went to see this movie and then I saw chapter 1 at the end how would I feel I mean there's signposting for sure they do have that at the end like right before it shows up and I think they even say it earlier that like they need to like if they're adults, like I think it's before they even get to the final climax, like after he uh, after the first House of Horrors, um, he says something about that. But I think I've, I I might have felt a little exhausted because <laughs> it's, it's a long movie and it was, it did not need to be two hours. They could have cut. Something two out. hours and fifteen
1: minutes. Really, two hours yeah. and
2: fifteen minutes. Like we've already said, that the last third felt protracted. I also like again Henry's character. That whole like possession by it thing like felt superfluous but yeah i think i would have felt like huh really do we need do we we gotta gotta do this again (laughs) Uh, yeah i guess there is something to be said for something that is actually planned to be two parts it's not going to be the same movie because it'll be different actors they'll be older it'll be from a different perspective but i don't know and
1: in the present day presumably yes Yeah. I I think I'm of two feelings about it. I mean, I I laughed along with the audience when that chapter one appeared. It seemed like playing with the audience, you know, Right, we'd be waiting for a teaser at the end of the movie and there's that whole kind of blockbuster tradition. But Yeah, there's also just the exhaustion of this movie has already bludgeoned me with clown sightings, and I'm not sure that I need to see that many more. And you're used to—I love the end of a horror movie when there's a feeling of catharsis. I mean, The Babadook is the movie that springs to mind, you know, where there's this feeling that you've been through this journey, you've experienced all this terror, and there's kind of a buckle at the end. It might not be that everything's fine and everything's happy. In fact, there's a, you know, somewhat creepy suggestion at the end of The Babadook that he's not gone. But— but there's still a feeling of the catharsis having been complete in the viewer's body and mind, and that, that didn't really happen in this movie.
0: Right, we go, I mean, we don't really get that sort of emotional conclusion. Like, that. I mean, the Baba Duke is kind of a purposeful anti ending in the way that admitted that it's just like you don't defeat grief; you learn to live with it, and it's there forever, and it just becomes part of your life. I guess the same way in it. Like, once you accept it, then you not then you're not afraid. Yeah, this does. I mean, there is something pleasantly charming about a film series that's only two movies. Instead of three or seven or nine or, or infinite. Well, who knows? Um, yes. Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. They might try to add a third part. Yeah, they do like a Deathly Hallows and like split it into two, two movies or a three part
2: Hobbit or whatever. Yeah.
1: But will you guys go? Are you excited at all to see part two of it?
2: I mean, considering I have, <laughs> I never watched the second part of the first one and I know vaguely what happens. Like, I do remember seeing bits and pieces of the second part as an adult. Uh, I think I probably will especially if the casting's good like if Jessica Chastain's in it I will go see it
1: right yeah I have to say that even though we're laughing about these kids only having one trade apiece I liked them well enough and I liked the young performers well enough that I like extrapolating them into the future and imagining how their lives might turn out
0: if nothing else the completest in me will find it hard to resist I mean I can't leave a series half watched
1: all right well thank you guys for coming in to to, uh, explore it with me and uh, for sitting through two hours and 15 minutes of Clown jump scares, and uh, let's maybe do it again when the next one comes along. Yeah, in 27 years.
0: All right. <laughs> I swear blood oath. <laughs> <laughs> yep.
1: All right. Well, thank you for joining us of this first reboot of the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. This episode was produced by June Thomas. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Liktai. For Aisha Harris and Sam Adams at Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens, and we'll talk to you in two weeks.